First Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. You may be seated. All right, wonderful to see everybody today uh, and excited to continue going through this short passage of Scripture out of Peter, uh, talking about our heavenly hope. And today I want to talk to us about the concept of having a true treasure. So let's pray and uh, we will begin. Let's pray one more time for the, the God's blessing uh, on His Word and for our time. Let's pray together. Father... Lord, again, we simply come before you and we're grateful that you have given us such a sure hope, Lord, that you've given us a treasure that cannot fade away, that is not defiled, that is imperishable, indestructible. And Lord, we know that you have done this by your sovereign mercy, your sovereign grace. We know that you've done this because you are good and you've given us this great inheritance, and that it is your pleasure to give us the kingdom. Lord, we're grateful that even though our lives in this world are surrounded by temporal things that don't last, that are constantly wearing out, and that the transient nature of these things are evidenced everywhere in our lives, we're thankful for a hope and a treasure and a possession that can never be taken away and can never be diminished. And so, Lord, we pray, help us now. As we learn and as we focus on this treasure, this heavenly hope of ours, help us to pull our, put our hope there. Help us to have our, our hope and our confidence firmly fixed in that which can never be shaken. We pray your blessing on our time, and it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, when we think about the believer's hope... Uh, we're constantly bombarded with questions, questions about heaven, questions about our lives here. And it really should dawn on us, and we should contemplate just how fragile life is. We should contemplate how quick it is, how transient it is, and really we should think about the transitional stage that we're in, because that's really what it is. You and I are just transitioning from one world to the next. We're pilgrims on the way. We're exiles just passing through. 
And that should really cause us to look at the things around us in our life in a totally different way. The Scripture really repeats this idea that the believer's life is to be lived eschatologically. That is to say that we are to constantly have a view to our future glory. It will really change the way that we live even in this world, living in light of our eternal home. And it's not just knowing that heaven is for us, but it's living in such a way that shows that this world, this earth, this temporal time is really not our treasure. Heaven is. And in the same way, if heaven is where our true treasure resides, then we see that our lives in this world are just a transitional existence. Paul called his life a course that was about to finish. And it's really indicative of these glorious metaphors that God has given us so that we can relate our lives to what it really is. That it's like a race. It's like a course. It's like a journey, if you would. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 that knowing that we're in a race, knowing that our lives are short, knowing that we're in a, a competition, as it were, that we are to run in a specific type of way, that we are to run the race so that when the final result, results are in, we will not be disqualified in the end. Therefore, Paul tells us, run in such a way as to win. And I think that's just a parallel to the idea that you find in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, where he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Obviously, we are not running in order to merit our reward. We're not running in that sense to, to earn our salvation. But we need to feel the tension of our perseverance. We need to feel that, that, that truth, that reality, that our salvation is one that needs to be worked out. And it needs to be worked out in fear and in trembling. You know, the athlete lives his whole life in hope of something. He lives his whole life in hope of a future reward, of an ultimate victory. I mean, Olympics are in season right now. Olympics are glorious. I don't know if you've caught any of the Olympics or if you've seen any of that. Many of you don't even have television. I know how puritanical you are. But if you've seen highlights or clicked on anything, uh, on the internet, and you, you've seen some, uh, hopefully, some of the better moments of the Olympics, people running with glorious, glorious, triumphant coronation of receiving a, 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 a medal, a gold medal especially. But you know what? It's exactly what Paul says there in 1 Corinthians, that some run and some train and some labor in such a way as to, what, receive a perishable wreath. A gold medal is not going to last. It's a, eventually it's going to perish or they will perish before they get time to really enjoy it. It's transient one way or another. It's a momentary glory. But our glory is an abiding glory. We receive not a perishable wreath, but an imperishable crown of glory. The crown of glory just means this, that you are going to be crowned with glory. It means that God is going to bestow upon you the glory of heaven. I think that's what's meant by a crown of life in James. You've been given a crown of life, which means God is going to crown you with life 
unending. And that's really the way that we ought to be living our lives, striving and laboring and pursuing that which cannot fade away. All ministry is to be done in such a way as to receive an unfading reward. For example, Right here in this book, Peter chapter 5, he exhorts the elders that they would shepherd the flock of God, that they would exercise oversight with a certain demeanor, a certain manner, voluntarily, not under compulsion. The reason why? So that when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The unfading crown crown of glory. So to look forward to an unfading crown of glory for a life spent in ministry or a crown of life for a life of perseverance or a crown of righteousness, as Paul says, for keeping the faith. All of these crowns, by the way, will be simply cast back at Jesus' feet in worship. But all of these crowns testify of a life lived treasuring heaven treasuring our ultimate future glory. This is exactly what Peter wants us to do. He wants us to treasure the, the perfections and the supremacy of our heavenly hope instead of the imperfections and the inferiority of earthly treasures. Well, we're really good at treasuring earthly treasures, aren't we? We take care of our things very nicely. We polish our cars. We update our computers. We take care of our houses. And because we love the things that God has given us, there's nothing necessarily wrong or evil in that, but it is if you make your life that. It is if you put all of your hope in your house, all of your hope in your possessions, and that will show that you are not treasuring heaven, but that your whole entire aspiration is here in this place. And so I want to labor under this heading, treasuring the perfections of heaven. Look at verse 4 again. We have been, just for context, verse 3, we've been born again to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. That's what I want to focus on. This verse gives us the final purpose of why God caused us to be born again. Why it was that God in His sovereign initiative caused us to have life, to be born again, to be born anew. It's a double purpose clause. Number one, it was so that we could have a living hope. That's in verse 3. But here, the second purpose clause is so that we would obtain an inheritance that's why he regenerated us for that reason. As we're going to find out, that inheritance is obtained by faith. And so, this is a good instance of regeneration preceding faith. He caused us to be born again, and then you obtain your inheritance by faith. But I want to show you, I want to show you three principles, I think, that emerge from this text about our hope and about how our hope ought to consist in true treasure. Number one, therefore, true treasure can only be obtained by faith, by faith. So the first observation is this. It's an exegetical one. Verse 4 is really an extension of verse 3, when we were born again for a living hope. And so the second effect of regeneration is not only that we were born again to have a living hope, but we were also born again to have an abiding inheritance, to obtain 
an inheritance. That's really what we were born again for. If you have an ESV Bible, it says we were born anew to connect us to that head verb there for this reason, for an inheritance. That's the literal rendition of that. But what it means is that our treasure, our hope, is given to us freely by His grace, or to use Peter's words, by His mercy, He caused us to be born again. And that's the way that all salvation works. It is always on the basis of God's sovereign grace, and it is always obtained, or to use an older word, it is always procured by faith. Romans chapter 4, verse 6 This is a critical passage for this, uh, just to show the dynamics of this. But Romans 4.16, excuse me, verse 16 says this. For this reason, it is by faith, in order that it might be in accordance with grace. You see, Paul there is laboring to protect the gospel of free grace, free from works, free from human merit, free from trying to earn your salvation. It is by faith in order that it might be according to grace. And so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only those who are the law, i.e. the Jews, but also those who are the faith of Abraham, i.e. anybody, including Gentiles. That's why Paul concludes Abraham is the father of us all. All. See, this is the way it always works. His inheritance, that is Abraham's, becomes our inheritance. And the way that we inherit our inheritance is the same way that Abraham inherited it, by faith. So true treasure is something that we cannot earn. It doesn't come by the sweat of your brow or by the things that are going to slip through your fingers. It can only be obtained by faith, by faith. It is according to His great mercy that we will obtain this inheritance. What a perfect picture of regeneration preceding faith. But what faith does is it connects us to the world to come. That's why it's so important. When we believe to salvation and we are granted an inheritance here and now, we are given a guarantee that we cannot fully see yet but a guarantee that will come in the life to come. Our inheritance now will determine the life hereafter. For example, I was reading Richard Baxter's little book, Richard Baxter, Dying Thoughts, in his little Puritan paperback there, where he says that the possession is here, but the, excuse me, the, the possession of it is there, but the preparation is here. And so he's trying to underscore the significance of faith. This is what he says. The life to come depends upon the present life, as the life of an adult depends upon infancy, or the reward upon the work, or the prize of racers and soldiers upon their running and their fighting, or the merchants when they gain, when gain is upon their voyage. Heaven is won or lost on earth. Isn't that amazing? Heaven is won or lost on earth earth. And therefore, it is absolutely indicative of the fact that our treasure can only be obtained through salvation in this life by faith. But let me move on now to the quality of our inheritance, which is this. Our true treasure, not only can it not be earned, 
and it must be received by faith, but our true treasure cannot be tarnished. It cannot be tarnished. Isn't this encouraging to know that one day you will receive a treasure that will never fade, it will never break down, it will never need batteries, you'll never have to recharge it, you'll never have to take it to the shop, you'll never have to, uh, uh, you know, uh, get somebody, pay somebody to come and to work on it. It will be imperishable, unfading, untarnishable. It, it, it will not be subject to decay. It cannot break down. In a sermon entitled, That This World Will One Day Come to an End, Jonathan Edwards preached on the, the transient nature of this life out of Psalm 102. Of old, this is what it says, Psalm 102, verse 25. It says, Of old you have founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure. And all of them they will wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them, and they will be changed. Another reason why everything will run out, it's not because of the second law of thermodynamics. The reason everything will run out and break down is ultimately because God will break it down. God is the one that will transform this temporal world. On this verse, Edwards labored to try to pry the world from his hearer's hands. He says, let us therefore turn off our eyes and our hearts from this degenerate and corrupt world from which Christ came into the world to redeem it. Let us not therefore be of this world, seeing that he and his kingdom are not of this world. Let our hearts sit loose with the things as those, with things as those things excuse me, as we don't think those things at, or, excuse me, let me read that again. <laughs> let me read that one more time here. He says, let our hearts sit loose to those things as those that don't think themselves at home here, but look at heaven as their dwelling place and hope at Christ's coming to be caught up from the earth to meet him and so to ever be with him. That's what Paul, that's taken right out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 18, talking about the rapture that will take place when Christ returns. I think, I hope, that when He will come, He will snatch us up, take us out of this degenerate world, and He will establish His kingdom. And so Peter's discourse on our heavenly inheritance is just that. It, it's to be comforting. It's to be comforting. It's comforting, number one, because we inherit. Look at that word, inheritance. It's an interesting word because it has a deep uh, theological background. It is rooted in the concept mainly in the Old Testament of inheriting, above everything, the land. The people of God were always promised that they would inherit the land. It's used dozens of times in the book of Joshua. And it's used, this uh, Hebrew word, nahalah, it's used of the land of Canaan in Numbers 32 and Deuteronomy chapter 2 in, in uh, uh, Psalm 105. Uh, Stephen mentions this in Acts chapter 7 in his sermon, this idea of inheriting the land. But my friends, Jesus extended our inheritance not just to the borders of Canaan, but he extended our inheritance to the earth. When he says in Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The whole earth will be ours, the heavenly country. And 
It is not inconsistent to see the Old Testament connection with Peter. If you look at the, the epistles of Peter, Peter does a great job of, 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 of picking up an Old Testament idea, a theme, a doctrine, a concept, and then applying it to the New Covenant believer. Look at chapter 2, verse 9. This might be the quintessential example of this. But Peter has no problem using Old Covenant ideas, themes, titles, and applying it to New Covenant believers as an expression, I think, of the ultimate fulfillment of these things. He says, you are a chosen race. Keeping in mind that Peter here is probably predominantly ministering to Gentiles. He says, you are a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. But that is what Israel was to do, to proclaim the excellencies of Him that called them. To a, better, to a higher degree, to a more preeminent, supreme, superior degree, therefore, we, the new covenant believer, is called by God. Israel was called, but as we learn from Romans 9, not all Israel is Israel. Not all Israel that was called by God received an effectual, salvific, sovereign calling to salvation. But we have. While the Jews today sit in Jerusalem weeping over their broken temple, God's holy nation, His people today, rejoice in a kingdom that can never be shaken. Folks, we don't have a temple that can be broken by the Romans. Our temple is spiritual. Ultimately, our temple is Jesus Christ. In fact, our inheritance cannot be tarnished at all. As Hebrews says in, in Hebrews 12, 27 and 28, our kingdom is one that is indestructible, one that can never be shaken. Peter labors to prove this, and he uses three different words to express this. He says, we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. And I really think that Peter meant for us to see this as a sweet truth, to see this as a point of worship. And the reason I say that is because he uses a, a particular construction, even in his letter, he uses the... Uh, what's known as alliteration, which basically means you use a series of words that begin with the same sound in order to stress one reality. And so, in the Greek word, he uses the alpha privative, ah, in order to start all of them. It would be kind of like in English saying unperishable, undefiled, unfading. You see that? He's just He's just piling on glorious attribute after glorious description after glorious attribute upon our inheritance to stress the, the simple fact of this, that our treasure can never be tarnished. No one can take it away. It cannot be stolen. It cannot be defiled by sin or corruption. It is not subject to the effects of the fall. Now let's look at these one by one. Number one, it is an imperishable inheritance. That means that Peter here is stressing the durability of our inheritance. Oh, people today inherit things. You know, the, you know how the story goes. People can inherit the, 
the, the, the, the inheritance or the belongings, the estate of a loved one, a, let's say a grandfather or father, and, and, and things happen in the midst of that where that inheritance gets blown out of proportion. People are sitting there fighting and bickering and, and disputing who's going to get what in that inheritance. That inheritance will ultimately disappoint every single one of them. Eventually, that inheritance will be destroyed But Peter says our inheritance is indestructible, indestructible, and also it is undefiled. So there is no type of sinful machinations that we can add to our inheritance. He stresses the moral quality of our inheritance when he says it is undefiled. It is amiantas. Amiantas just means purity. So ah means it cannot be undefiled. Purified. It cannot be undefiled. And this really corresponds with the picture that John gives us in Revelation 21. Revelation 21, verse 27 says that very thing. Nothing unclean will enter there. Matter of fact, he says, nothing unclean. No one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it. God will protect our inheritance, and it will be a holy, undefilable inheritance, but it'll also be an unfading inheritance. Now, each of these terms are related, and they're somewhat similar, but they differ significantly enough for us to stress the quality of each word. This one, unfading, literally means it will not be subject to the adverse effects of time. Time is a killer, isn't it? Time will make that beautiful uh, red Porsche or Corvette or Mustang or whatever, it will make it fade. It will ultimately bring it to ruin. It will cause it to rust and corrode. It will cause the dashboard to begin to fade and the leather seats will begin to wear out. The adverse effects of time. Time is the enemy. Time is slipping away. I mean, just even in preparation for the things I was going to teach today, I was looking over at my clock constantly. That time is running out. It's running out. And eventually, for our whole life, time will run out. Time is slipping away. That's why we're called to redeem the time. But heaven is a place where time will no longer have any negative adverse effects on God's world. With these three words, Peter covers all of these three different areas. And he probably follows Jesus No doubt he had Jesus in his mind and his sayings when Jesus said in Matthew 6, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. You want to talk about durability. And where thieves break in and steal. You want to talk about morality. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. You want to talk about longevity and perpetuity? Your treasure in heaven will endure forever because it will be in a realm that is eternal, namely heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves cannot break into steel, or where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But the problem with this world is that everything fades away. Everything ultimately is subject to perish. Everything ultimately is subject to impurity. People may have very 
very uh, 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 noble uh, possessions. Maybe they have possessions that are not evil in themselves. But who knows what the process was to get those possessions. A person may have a television, and a television is not a moral entity in and of itself. But if he stole it, he acquired it through sinful means. But in heaven, everything that you have will be acquired through holy means. It will be given to you freely by God's grace. It would be a holy possession, a holy inheritance. You have no guilty conscience in enjoying your inheritance in heaven. You will be free to explore any worlds or mansions or, or rooms or dwelling places or palatial dwellings that God gives you to inherit, to possess. And therefore, God has surrounded us in this world at least, with a reminder of our things that we live in a fallen world. And it reminds us of the inescapable effects of the fall, even through our possessions, right? And if we cling too tightly to those things, then we, we, we're clinging to things that belong to this present evil age, things that are destined to be dissolved. This is why Scripture tells us not to find our all and all in our things. Nothing temporary, neither things nor possessions nor family nor, nor any type of temporal relationship. You cannot find your all in all there. I don't know how many Christians that I've talked to, that I've met, struggle with clinging to their family too tightly in this life. Clinging to the way that life was before you were converted. Trying to associate and identify and go back to the family reunions as if nothing has changed with you. But in reality, everything has changed about you because you're in Christ. And so we've got two scriptures. First, to stress that temporal things are and can be evil in themselves. First John chapter 2, or at least in the way that we hold them. First John chapter 2 verse 15 says, do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anybody loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I mean, John speaks in just a gut-wrenching way, doesn't he? Just a matter of fact, no black and white, call him a legalist, tell him whatever you want. But this is how he talks. For all that is in the world... The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it is of the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Lives forever. An entire industry is built around this verse right here, taking advantage of the truth that is taught in this verse right here, that man left to himself his natural tendency, tendency is always to pursue the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And so the world is very good at packaging things for you to enhance your ability to enjoy things that are rooted in these concepts, but also overvaluing any temporal thing and really identifying with this temporal world overall. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, just a fascinating, fascinating passage of Scripture that teaches how to live in this world. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 29, teaches us not to overvalue temporal things, even if they are not evil in themselves, but it's how you identify yourself. 
It's coming home in your Christian identity, who you really are. Listen to what Paul says here. He says, but this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened so that from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those that rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and as those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use the world, and I think this is kind of the crux interpretive of the whole context, as though they did not make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away. Isn't that amazing? Don't relate too much with the world, the things that make you weep, the things that make you rejoice. Know that ultimately everything is going to end. Don't slip into a bitter depression when someone passes away because guess what? That's not who you are. Do not rejoice in some temporary festive idea because guess what? That too will come to an end. And Paul says this, even if you're married, don't find your all in all in your spouse. I think that's what this verse means. I don't think it means ignore your wife when you get home and pretend you don't have one. That's not going to get you anywhere except the couch. But he's saying, watch the way that you hold things. It's not wrong to have a nice house, to have a nice car. It's not wrong to make an investment, but it's how you hold the things that you have that will determine whether or not you are treasuring heaven or if you think your all in all resides in this temporal world that can rip away from you instantly at any time that God so desires to take you home. Isn't that amazing? That's why death is an enemy. Death is an enemy because at any time, death can, can rip from your hands, from your clutches, everything that you hold dear, your possessions, your loved ones, your spouse, your children, your future, your own life in this world can be taken away from you instantly at death. Lastly, our true treasure, if it's going to be true treasure, then it must be certain. Everything is uncertain in this world. But our treasure, because it is a heavenly treasure, an eternal and abiding treasure, must be a certain treasure. And so look at what Peter says again. He says, an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. This is glorious, folks, because it means that the power of God is keeping your inheritance safe. You want to talk about security. You want to talk about a wise investment. Get away from the stock market. Get away from, you know, uh, investing in bonds and gold and silver. Well, I'm not giving you financial advice. I'm just, don't over inflate the metaphor, okay? What I'm saying is that everything in the end will fail. Everything will fail. Morgan Stanley will call you up and say, sorry, we should probably close this account. It's not a good investment at this time. But you got, God will never call you and tell you that and tell you your investments that you're making in the world to come. You know, you should probably uh, lay off of the evangelism or, you know, you should probably you know, think about backing off the prayer or the Bible reading or, you know, your devotional time or your study time. You should probably think of investing in other things. God will never tell you that because your investment is protected by his own power. As a matter of fact, Peter is 
very careful to use a very particular participle here, which basically means that this is a, this is a divine passive, so it's a, pre, it's a perfect passive participle that says this. Because it is perfect, meaning that's the tense, it means it is something in the past that is totally completed, totally done, totally settled. Your inheritance is a matter of, of it's settled. It is, it's a done deal. God has protected it for you. It's, he, he cannot fail but to protect your inheritance. And it is also uh, in the passive voice, which means God is the one that is doing it on your behalf. You're not the one doing it. It's not active. You're not the active agent protecting your own inheritance. God is the one that is protecting it on your behalf. So let me just give you a, a, a simple picture of that. John chapter 10, verse 27. Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. Imperishable. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. No thieves can steal it. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Perfect preservation. Perfect protection. And I was thinking about this. I was thinking, boy, you know what? I pray for my church as I'm putting this sermon together. God that you would bring the sweet gift of assurance to every heart. That every person in this church who is truly in Christ, that they would experience the sweetness of assurance. That they would have as much as is possible this side of heaven an assurance of faith. As, as Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10, without wavering, without doubting, full confidence, full assurance that the Spirit of God would assure you of your inheritance so that you can start enjoying it now. Now. And unlike many of the Old Testament concepts of inheriting the promised land, Peter promises us an inheritance in the new creation that can never fail because God is totally preserving it, reserving it for us. The reservation is settled. All that remains is for us to take full possession of it. I've been studying Wayne Grudem a lot because I'm teaching systematic theology, but he also has a commentary on 1 Peter, and this is good because he explains the contrast between old covenant inheritance, new covenant inheritance, and this is what he says. He says, the inheritance of the new covenant Christian is shown to be far superior to the earthly inheritance of the people of Israel in the land of Canaan. That earthly land was not kept for them, was not, but rather it was taken from them in the exile and later through Roman occupation. Even while they possessed the land, it produced rewards that decayed, rewards that faded away in glory. The beauty of the land's holiness before God was repeatedly defiled by sin. The pastoral heart of Peter here really shines forth. And that the last thing that he says makes it extremely personal for you and for me. Look at this is an inheritance reserved in heaven for you. And I thought, this is, this is dynamite. If we really believe this for you, we do our exegetical work and we say, okay, 1 Peter is not written to me, but it is written for you. 
So this advantage is also for you, for me. But do we feel that? Do we sense that? Do we really believe that? That we have an inheritance coming to us, brethren, that cannot perish, cannot fade away. It is totally reserved in heaven for you. You have a spot at the banqueting table. You have a seat reserved for you. There's silverware waiting for you to come and dine. I wonder if we really think that that is just all just pie in the sky. Some people do. They just think, oh, if you put too much stress on living heavenly-minded, you'll be no earthly good. You think, well, you know, we need to worry about life now. There's enough trouble here now. Let's focus on the trouble in our life now. There's so much to worry about. How can I even delight in something to come? My friend, I would only tell you this. God tells you don't worry. And part of the reason why he tells you not to worry is because you have such a glorious, eternal hope of heaven that will never fade away. Every recipient of the divine mercy of God will not fail to also receive his divine reward. What a great promise. What an exceedingly precious promise that we have, this inheritance. It's glorious beyond belief. And that's why Paul uh, said in Acts chapter 20, I was reminded of this verse, Acts chapter 20, in the book of Acts, Paul says in verse 34, or beginning in verse 32, that is, he says, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all of those that are being sanctified. You see, your inheritance is based on God's ability, not your ability. That means you don't live like the world, trying to get as much as you can get before it's over. No, we're called to be at peace, to know that God is. We're called to just rest in the inheritance that God has reserved for us. Stop trying to find your treasure here. There isn't treasure here that lasts anyway. Put all your hope in the treasure that is to come because God is able to give you that inheritance to bring you to the final installment of the grace of God in your life through glorification. Let's pray. Father, I don't know that there's anything more potent in the whole Christian life whether for good or for evil, but that we find our true treasure either here or there. And so, Lord, I don't know that there's anything more important than that, that we learn how to treasure things. Please teach us, Lord, how to treasure heaven. We're not good at it. We're in our heart of hearts, oftentimes empiricists, if we don't see it, taste it, smell it, touch it, or hear it, we don't believe it. But Lord, help us through the eye of faith to see this glorious inheritance that you have given to the saints, to set our hope in that which cannot perish, to set our mind on that that cannot be decayed, that which can never be taken from us, And help us to live in light of that glorious truth, Lord, knowing that it is as certain as Jesus' own resurrection from the dead. 
Thank you, Father, that it's all based on your certitude, that it's all based on the assurance that you provide, the guarantee that you give. We don't have to work for it. We don't have to labor. We don't have to earn it by the sweat of our brow. Lord, it is freely given to us by the grace of God. Oh, God, that if anybody in this place doesn't have that inheritance or doesn't have that, ins- that assurance, may you grant it to them. Won't you give it to them? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.